everybody. Welcome to the Energy Newsbeat podcast. My name's Stu Turley, President and CEO of the Sandstone Group. You know, with COP28 coming out right now, there's a lot of information out there. I don't know about you, but I have a real headache trying to figure out facts, matter, money, lowest kilowatt per hour, what's right, what's wrong. I'll tell you what, I got to be able to reach out to a wonderful individual. His name is Ron Miller, and he is in the energy space. He's got a great, great program coming up in with the School of Mines. Uh, it is Renewable Energy 101, online and in person. But we've been talking about what is energy. Thank you, Ron, for stopping by the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here, Stu. Uh, always enjoy your podcasts and learn a lot. Some interesting guests. Huh? Hope that uh, trend continues today as well. Oh, well, thank you, Ron. I'll tell you, the School of Mines is so cool. They're out by your house in Golden. Yeah, it's got an excellent reputation. In the engineering, uh, worked with a number of gra- their graduates, uh, different uh, multinational mining companies, Stu. And uh, they're a great uh, sponsor partner for this uh, one-day webinar in-person class there at the Colorado School of Mines. So very happy about that. I am a little bit biased about the uh, School of Mines. Michael Tanner, my co-host, is graduated from there uh, and then got his master's uh, also. So uh, he is, uh, don't tell anybody, but he's a freak. Uh, I, I mean, he is one of the coolest freaks out there. Uh, understanding just about everything around energy between the geology of oil and gas and finances and the school of mines should be just very proud of the, um, the students that they do produce. So um, uh, hats off for having them as a sponsor, but let's backtrack just here a little bit. Mm -hmm. When we're sitting here, we kind of wonder about the information Education with facts matter. I don't know about you, but when I was going to school, uh, the, they hit us with a, a stick. Uh, and if uh, the facts mattered, that seems like that's gone away. But how, uh, when you got to this point of even having this webinar, how did you get to the point of when you're saying, what is the webinar and what kind of material are you putting in there? Well, I'd say I have um, a little background. I've uh, been in the energy sector my entire career, a long career, and uh, very uh, enjoyable for me, and it's my passion. But I think uh, a lot of the uh, information that we're getting uh, from different multiple sources you know, may or may not be fully uh, factual. And uh, sometimes the worst uh, information is a half-truth, uh, not telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, to, to kind of quote a legal term that we're all familiar with. And I think that's the one thing I um, write an energy article on LinkedIn every month. Uh, about three quarters of them are picked up on energycentral.com. But uh, I really believe in sharing information from my career from different you know, oil and gas, renewables, mining, utilities uh, to really help to educate. And I don't mean that in a dismissive um, manner, but to right. help, uh, uh, you know, uh, help people understand some of the dynamics and the fundamentals of energy. So we can, with that information, that we can re-begin making not only better uh, energy decisions, but things that take a lot of different criteria, meaning cost, reliability, you bet, and emissions. All those three areas 
uh, in making that decision, not just one preferentially. Well, you know, when we sit back and we kind of think, uh, there's such a a di- diverse opinions, oil and gas, bad, fossil fuels, bad, but they're 80% of the energy of the world. Nuclear is bad, but it provides the most stable baseload out there. Wind and solar have always been getting cheaper. How do, how do you talk or how do you tee up your normal discussion? Let's say you're on an elevator and somebody says, I like me some cheap energy. Uh, I think wind and solar are great. How would you respond to somebody just saying wind and solar is the cheapest on the planet? Stu, I'll tell you, there's so many graphs that you can look at and they have facts, yep. but they show the levelized cost of energy. And okay. uh, a number of uh, entities have put those out. And they're all factual for the production cost of wind, solar, nuclear, gas, coal at all. And that's really that that word production is a real key nut name or word, because if everyone lived by a utility scale, 100 megawatt and up solar winds farm. Right where the electricity comes directly to their house, yes, it is the cheapest. But getting a wind farm that's out in the boonies, yep. uh, you know, a lot of land, same thing with solar, a, a lot less land, into the, uh, urban areas where the majority of the U.S. population lives, it involves transmission and reliability issues. When you look at production costs, which are low for solar and wind, but then you look at areas, countries, and states that have high renewable energy penetration, and you look at as renewable energy penetration increases, does the retail price that the consumer pays, whether it be at your home, your business, or your industry, does it also drop by 90% since 2000? The answer is emphatically no, it's gone the other way Mm -hmm. because of High capital expenditures for transmission, that's not always used at right. 100% capacity factor. So I think that's some of the, the interesting yep. things that we look at is, well, it's great there at that site. Or if you have solar on your roof, it's directly going to the demand. No transmission, no capital costs, uh, some, maybe uh, 100 feet of wire, copper wire. Right. A lot different than a 100 or 200 megawatt solar plant or wind farm out in Wyoming, Kansas, the eastern plains of Colorado, et cetera. So I think that's one element people need to. Well, you you bring up a lot of great points, Ron. But (laughs) let me ask this, because New York and California are twice the expense of Texas's electrical to its consumers. Right. And so. We spent over $3.5 billion in Texas to bring the wind farm energy to the west uh, eastern part of the state. But we have nuclear, we have natural gas, we have wind, we're going to be the largest solar, and it's blending everything together. It seems to work okay if you blend everything together and not plan on just one uh, wind or solar only. Is that a fair statement or is that? No, I, I think uh, you, you bring up a really good point in that it's not energy either or. It, unless we dramatically reduce our energy consumption and for the last oh, only like probably 300 years, it's gone up. Um, we're, we, we need all of the above, you know, like the, uh, yeah. like the AB, the multiple choice test, uh, E, all of the above. Right. Uh, 
And I, I like to use the analogy uh, for transmission. Say you have a, a solar or wind farm connecting to the grid versus right. a natural gas you know, plant that's base load, not a peaker, base load. Right. Build that transmission line and just for a minute, assume that that transmission line is like an airplane, commercial aircraft. Right. Two aircraft. One handles solar and wind. Another one so uh, services the gas plant. How many airlines make money when the capacity factor or the amount of passengers on the plane is about 90 to 95% versus the other plane that's only got 25 to 35%, right. which is the renewables because they're intermittent solar variable wind. And I'm not knocking solar or wind. I'm just saying the reality is you've got an, for 16 hours of the day, perhaps for solar, you've got a grossly underutilized asset that you've paid a lot of money to right. build. And I think that's the one thing when you look at it. Spend as much money as you want. I don't care if electricity goes to 30, 50, 60 cents a kilowatt hour. If that's the mindset and the voting right. population's you know, uh, idea of what's right, that, that's fine. We, we live in a republic. So, but yeah. I think people will at some point get, see prices increasing. And as much as they want to do the right thing, whatever right thing to a lot of people might be, right. I think that almighty wallet issue comes up and raises its ugly face a lot a lot of times we've seen it in reality yeah. uh, uh, that that ugly face of i don't want to pay that much money what's the alternative right but you know and and we sit back and we kind of go i did a, a bunch of studies uh I, i'm trying to get to the bottom of you know the the wind the life expectancy or the fiscal responsibility of a wind farm is zero without tax subsidies. I mean, from day one, they're not fiscally responsible. And we've seen Orsted lose billions. Uh, we've seen, you know, the wind farms not being bid on on the East Coast now. Yes. And so we're, we're losing those kind of things. And then when you see the everybody says they're carbon neutral and they're free, they don't become carbon neutral until 10 years. And the maintenance numbers now, Ron, that I put together is after eight years with tax subsidies, the tax subsidies typically will run out into that eight-year range. Mm -hmm. After that point, they are no longer fiscally capable of being sustained because the maintenance has kicked in at this time. And they cannot be sustained without rates increasing to the rate payers. So if now you've got a real problem, then reclamation, reclamation, that's an OSU way to talk, yeah. reclamation. <laughs> I, guess, I think the School of Mines would have a better way of teaching their students how to talk. But the reclamation of a wind farm is over $380,000 just to get rid of the concrete on one pad. I mean, it's just crazy when the wind farms are failing, you know, and they're going to be walked away from. and and that to me is the sad part about the ESG and the energy side is nobody's pricing in the reclamation of the wind farms when they're done after 10 years. Yeah, I, I tell you, Stu, you bring up a couple of really great points. Uh, one is the uh, environmental, the uh, emissions of 1,500 tons of uh, concrete, uh, like Buku's amount of steel, tons of steel. When you look at 
what's the carbon footprint of those materials that in plastics for the uh, wind turbine blades when you look at that that's it starts out like a like a, a, a capital project you're in the hole when you invest negative it takes time to get up to zero before you start getting much more of the benefit that you want the other thing in part of this renewable energy 101 course i actually looked at two a solar plant and a wind farm 100 megawatts okay with the investment tax credit for solar and the uh, accelerated depreciation six years you depreciate uh, 85 okay. percent of the capex and it's similar for a wind farm production tax credit which is 2.6 cents per kilowatt hour and they get the accelerated depreciation nice. when you look at both those types of farms with the federal tax benefits and without right. in the first five years your rate of return with with it, with all these benefits, is twice the return if it had no incentive. Huh. So you're without the tax credits, you would be having a much lower rate of return um, right. on that project. So it really makes it, which brings up another point that I'll just throw out, uh, gasoline to a fire. If solar and wind are the lowest cost, production cost of energy, why do we subsidize through tax production tax credit, investment tax credit, accelerated depreciation, the lowest price. Usually when things are high priced, but society determines we need to do this, let's incent, let's get the economies of scale instead of one gigawatt, we want 10 gigawatts. And right. the 10 gigawatts, the price curve will go. When it's the lowest price, what is the U.S. taxpayer getting for that right. tax benefit extended to solar and wind developers? And you know, it's you know, if the tax law gives a benefit, it's legal. But I'm and, just questioning: at what point do we give money that is just making developers, you know, very wealthy? Right. They may not have done it had that generous tax benefit been extended to them and that's that's the question that's Once a big again, question. As a taxpayer as a, as a consumer paying my monthly bills right. um yeah I, i've got to ask those questions because i don't think people are really looking at it and saying what bang are we getting for our dollar okay well you, br you brought up some uh, excellent points uh while we were chit-chatting beforehand and it's kind of like when we sit back and and look at uh the dollar what's the cost per dollar or the um, per kilowatt hour and who's paying for it sitting there idle. And as you go through and you, and you say, how are they the cost per energy? Could you describe how it's not fairly being calculated out in there? If that makes sense. Well, I, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll give you one example. Uh, Stu is uh, in 2022, California had 2.4 million megawatt hours curtailed because when the energy is available to be produced, and I'm saying mainly solar, but there's some wind, guess what? There's not demand. And electricity, you have to match solar or match supply and demand every second of every day of every, you know, every month. So when you don't have demand, there's no place for it to go unless you have energy storage facilities. Right. So you have to tell that solar and wind developer, turn your machines off, but there's right. no home for it. So the point is for 2.4 million megawatt hours last year, when you look at a taxpayer saying, hey, for that farm that we gave you ITC, right. the accelerated depreciation, over 20 years, that comes to about a two cents per kilowatt hour 
subsidy that federal taxpayers are paying. But guess what? We didn't get 2.4 million megawatt hours. So we're paying for something up front that we're not getting get as a consumer. And I think that's uh, that gets, you know, that cost of curtailment to the federal taxpayers is about $48 million last year for California alone. So wow. I think once again, it's it's all about, are we getting value? Who questions whether, not what solar or wind is good about emissions, it, it is. I mean, they, they do, they're lower right. than coal, not as good as yes. nuclear. But, <laughs> but when you look at, hey, I want, if, if you're gonna make that expenditure, I want that plane to be full all the time with passengers that pay the freight, right? Rather right. than, well, we're just going to curtail it, and uh, I'm sorry you're losing money, federal taxpayer, but that's just the way things are. Right. I, I question whether that's really a good model for our energy policy and from a consumer and right. an environmental standpoint. Um, yeah, that just really kind of explained it out a lot better than, than I did. Um, and when we sit back and take a look, at the cost per kilowatt hour, uh, you know, the only way to really get humanity elevated out of poverty is through energy. And Alex Epstein does a great job, um, you know, talking about uh, work and the power and the, you know, how much does it cost to get energy done so we don't have to plant the crops or uh, go walk two miles to get the water and, and those things. That is what energy should be used for, is elevating people out of poverty. So with the least impact on the environment, uh, that to me is critical. But boy, King Cole is coming back big time. And it's because of the uh, the world needing all forms of energy. Boy, China has got 400 coal plants uh, on the map. So the School of Mines may be sending a bunch of guys over to China. <laughs> I'm, I'm yeah, kidding. It's, but. it's interesting. Last decade, the decade of 2010, uh, the United States and the EU retired 49,200 megawatts of coal-fired plants. Wow. The uh, I think this next number will have been inflated, but in the this decade, 2020, China is building 250,000 megawatts, five times, of new coal. Yep. And I think that number has gone north uh, since that statistic was out there. So, you know, once again, um, it's a little bit of an, an our irony is that coal plant built in China is helping to build wind farms and solar plants and solar panels so that the West can have these things and feel good that we're solving right. our climate crisis all the while China is just churning out. And if there was a way in God's green earth to say all the emissions from any country that is really just putting it out, and the United States is the right. is second largest uh, uh, emitter, for it to stay in its own airspace. But I don't think that's the way uh, the world, mm. the globe uh, works with weather. I think their pollution will eventually be our pollution. So well, here's the, you bring up a great, I think we need to draw a map and I'll get my a crayon out here because I got about, yeah, the way I think I've got about 15 different maps going on in my head right now. Yeah. yeah. And the coal uh, over, uh, you just nailed it. And that is 
we are buying through tax credits and the consumers are paying higher kilowatt per hour for solar and wind mm -hmm. because the battery is right now, if you're putting storage on a farm, I believe it's $500 per kilowatt hour or something. And it needs to be down into that 50 range before yes. that it's really affordable without subsidies. So you're 500 versus the 50. We're subsidizing all of this with trillions of dollars. We're shipping the orders over to China for them to make the gear. The gear's being shipped over back to the United States for us to install, to pay higher. And then they're taking the profits and putting low-cost coal plants in so they can pollute. Their pollution has gone up. Their CO2 emissions has gone up over 220%. In the last few years, ours has actually gone down 22% because of the elimination of the natural gas, uh, the elimination of the coal plants and turning those to natural gas. That was from the EIA last year, said that was the only reason that we did was because of the transition to natural gas. This year, the EIA put out another report and said it may have. They didn't want to give natural gas any credit at all. So, Ron, you bring up a paradigm that we really need to have our graphics team work on. Because this little hamster wheel that we are now on is terrible. <laughs> it really is. You mentioned the natural gas. One of my articles of how natural gas fracking in the U.S. has reduced emissions, CO2 emissions. It's, it's out there on my LinkedIn uh, site. I've, I've spoken uh, at AEE, Association of Energy Engineers, uh, World Conferences. It's been published in their journal. But this big miracle, I'll say, of technology, and, and once again, I'll, I'll be fair, if there's breakthroughs in solar, wind, geothermal, uh, or oil and gas, you have to recognize all of them. But the fact that since 2008, when you look at the emissions of the United States in the energy sector, exactly what you said, replacing uh, more polluting coal with not perfectly clean natural gas, but much more of an improvement. It's been a dramatic shift in our emissions. But also, when you look at the rate of electricity prices from 1990 to 2008, 2008 to 2022, yep. the prior is very steep, 2.3% per year increase. Since 2008, a lot more natural gas, it's abundant, it's cheaper, it's a plateau, albeit about 0.5%. So since 2008, being the analytical engineering guy that I am, I calculated the amount of energy, electricity, cost savings for the American consumer is about $547 billion with a B. So not only are we lowering our emissions, the consumer is getting a less emitting, cheaper electricity solely due, you know, partially renewable energy. You know, you could right. say there's a part and there is. But when you look at the lion's share of energy in the United States, 39.2% is natural gas. Wow. So big change for the wallets of American consumers, in addition to the improvement in our emissions uh, performance. So a uh, two-edged sword, you know, cost and emissions. Got to look at both of them, not just one in a right. vacuum. So you bet. Wow. 
Now, boy, you you meant wow. I'm sitting here going, that was good. <laughs> I was like, man, I wish I had thought of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just I pulled up your article here, and I had read it before. Uh, but I'll have links in the show notes. So it's funny that you said that, and I'm like, I've read yes. <laughs> so well done on that article. I'll make sure that that's in the show notes. So, and as, so just to interject one thing. The, the oh, yeah. trouble I, I see is even though this was going on, uh, it's an like an inconvenient truth. You'll never see that in the news broadcasts, even though it's a lot of value, both emissions no. and dollars to the consumers. Why isn't that fact on the news that we are acknowledging this achievement? Uh, I think it's a bit bias that they don't say, oh, great deal on solar, a lot more generation than coal plants now. Right. And to be even handed, did you also know this fracking, whichever your opinion, it does have benefits and here they are. So I I love the article. Um, I I also think that solar has uh, more legs uh, than wind. Wind is now falling apart and falling off of the scale because of the expense. Uh, I believe that leg uh, the leg solar still's got a lot more play for uh, investors taking a look at where am I going to make my money because um, the energy investing space has been complicated. Ron with Bill Gates coming out just recently and saying that oh climate change is not going to kill us. Okay, and then you have BlackRock, Larry Fink coming out and saying we're uh, our funds are okay to invest in oil and gas for ESG. Our ESG investors are doing it. So you have two gigantic hypocrisy stories going on right here. And I still feel that solar is going to be easier to find investors in when they're taking a look, getting their money back. I don't know. What are your thoughts on because it's tough to get the money back on on wind. It seems like it's going to be easier on solar. I don't have any data to say that. That's a feeling that I have right now. Yeah, I think the uh, I would agree with you. Um, and solar is, uh, I guess, less moving parts. Even though you, know, you have the, the single <laughs> axis tracking, it tracks you know from east to west to catch the early morning sun. It's facing east in the afternoon. It's facing right. west. That as far as moving parts, it's not like a wind turbine that's uh, the blades uh, turning way up yeah. there, uh, 300 feet or more above the ground. Um, I think the only concern, uh, I'll, say, I'll say problem, concern with solar is I look at the California duck curve where they have this rush of solar from 8 a.m. until 4 p.m. in rough terms. Obviously, right. different times of the year, it's a little bit different, but it's a huge influx of solar energy to the grid, which satisfies the demand at eight to four. Right. But like most Americans, we have a life from 4 p.m. to 8 a.m. that requires energy, especially if you're in a cold climate like the Dakotas or or you know, trying to charge an EV. Yeah. Or char- yes. So I think that that part, that dynamic of how do you address that's one of the this, the uh, topics in my my uh, webinar is the duck curve. You know what what it does, what it doesn't do. Is this a concern? Should we be looking to uh, find alternatives that um, we could accept low emissions energy, but not 
say, well, it's five o'clock. Um, go build a fire out in the backyard to cook our meal tonight because we don't have electricity. That, that's that's going to be a concern. I think people need to be aware of, and that's that's part of the reason for this course, uh, uh, Stu, to make make sure people are aware of all the facts that may interfere with their lifestyle in the future. So it, uh, facts matter. Facts and physics. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. You know, I, I cannot wait to uh, hear more about this thing that you have, the Renewable Energy 101. This is going to be a big deal. And I, I really want to help get the word out on this because your story needs to get out there and sit back and evaluate the right numbers. I mean, it's just we all we want all types of energy. I just yes. don't want to print money. Fiscally, the world cannot print anymore. I just think that it's a mistake and that we need to get the lowest cost kilowatt per hour to everyone on the planet, even through the disproportionately impacted communities, because energy poverty is real. And it just breaks my heart that the financial systems are not geared up to deliver the lower cost kilowatt per hour. You got to look at the whole grid. And I'll tell you what, Ron, I would not want to be a balancing authority. Can you imagine uh, <laughs> sitting there with those guys going, I, I need 500 watts over here. I need 200 watts and I need you to spin up. I need you to stand down. I, I guarantee you, I, I, I'd be like in the corner drinking rather than having to fire up and tell, hey, you're on standby over here. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a tough job balancing the grid. It's not just, oh, plug it into the wall and think that you're going to have energy come out. There's a machine behind that. I, I tell you, um, Stuart, I used to work uh, over in Ghana, West Africa, and, and mining in there. And they have, you know, they used to have uh, uh, outages. They call them load shedding, where, you know, your, your facility gets nixed for energy one day out of every three sometimes you don't know when that one day might be and right. it's really makes you think we live in a privileged society in the u.s where when i turn the switch on i don't have to think well is the light going to come on is the pump going to work is the you know air conditioner you know we have very good reliability but over other countries and ghana has improved dramatically since uh, those times that's a real concern. And the right. problem with a grid not working that's got even 1% renewables is the alternative for it not working is in 17 seconds, the emergency diesel genset kicks on for those lucky people at a hotel or a business that, that they have it right. at their, at their uh, command. It's more polluting than getting from a better natural gas, solar wind from the grid. So Having a grid that works, that's reliable, right. is really better in the for the overall energy slash emissions slash cost equation. We just got to get the word out that we, we don't want all these other gensets at people's homes, wherever you live in the world. Right. It's not real efficient and it's not real, not real green. It really isn't. Yeah, I've I've got uh, multiple places and generators at each, and because you have to be able to survive the FE. I, well, let me ask this, and 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 closing up here in just in a few minutes, um, the FERC just put out and said we're going to have a lot of blackouts, potential of a lot of blackouts now because of the grid's problems and 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 everything else. What have you? Did you see that report come out? 
I have not, and I'll tell you, I've obviously been working on this uh, this uh, webinar, my my slide deck. But I tell you, I think the more, uh, and, and I'm not knocking renewables. I think with any situation, you solve um, what can make it work, and you you mitigate the risk rather than just accept it. You know, I don't like blackouts. What do we do? We put more hydro pump storage, more battery, more whatever load shifting, right. uh, time of use rates, whatever we have to do. But I think um, not having power that we're in electricity in our country, we have been so spoiled by not only cheap electricity, but reliable electricity. And I don't think people want to go back to where we were in the in the 20, 1920s or earlier, where it was not that reliable, or we had right. or people did not have access. So it gets to be a social issue too, like you say, not access. You're out gathering wood. Some countries burning dung for exactly not very healthy for your uh, your uh, respiratory system at all. So no. Anyway, long answer to a quest, short question, Stu. Oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> the, the unfortunately, the, between the geopolitical, the financial, and the energy types, everybody has. It seems like Ron, everybody's siloed into their little uh, specialities, and it's, so it's kind of nice to have the broader discussions because it is fiscal, it is geopolitical, it is farming. Uh, I mean, it is when you start putting all this stuff together, the farms use more energy than just about anybody else. But if they do all of this, then they do. I mean, it's a head game. I mean, this is a big chess match just to get the world out of poverty. It's yeah, I wild. think one problem that we have, it's uh, like you, your your keyword is siloed. And I think more of what we need is a more um, open discussion right. with openness to different ideas to calibrate. I I, I I use a quote in all of my articles, and I, I, I don't have it in front of me, but basically it says, um, it's better to have no resolution with a lot of discussion rather than having a resolution that has no discussion because you're not letting mm. your peer challenge you Say, hey, Ron, I, I I disagree with this area. Where's your proof? Uh, I don't see it this way. I found my professional life, you know, letting a, a, a co colleague wow. look at a presentation. They can kind of stress test it and say, hey, I think it's weak. We're not doing that in a lot of areas with our energy strategy. We're not letting dissenting votes, dissenting opinions, dissenting scientific analysis come into the fray and say, hey, I think there's a better product out there. Right. We have to find ways to be open. It reminds me of an old African proverb. If you want to go far, go alone. No, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, find a partner. And oh. we're not doing the partnering side of the of the coin. Uh, to, to your point about getting more people aware, allow dissenting votes, dissenting yeah. conversations. That's the only way we progress as a society on anything, medicine, engineering, yep. energy, education at all. So, Wow. Now, Ron, how do people find you? Uh, I'm going to have your LinkedIn uh, account in the show notes. Okay. And uh, so is there anything else that people need to know about you or how to get a hold of you? Um, if they want to link in, it's Ron Miller, comma, capital P, capital E, for professional engineer, and you'll find me. And uh, I would love to have people uh, link in, uh, look at my energy articles. Um, uh, always 
open for comment. Uh, that's one thing I've learned. One of the things I present not only to uh, mining and uh, energy conferences, but uh, uh, AEE chapters and, and uh, universities. And some of the very best questions I've had have been from students that have, uh, I'll say, not been dulled by 30 years in corporate America. Uh, this is the way you have to think. And they're very, very sharp, but they're also how do, how do you deal with this? Well, no one's ever asked that question. That's the kind of question that you want to get if you're looking for continuous improvement. Um, yep. A little bit We're of humility, up. but yeah, I, 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 love, I loved having you on and I love your attitude. Education is the most critical way to get poverty solved in the world. Yes. Um, it's, I think it's the only way we're going to survive. <laughs> if not, I'm going to sign up for uh, Elon's uh, flight to Mars. <laughs> I, I think I, that ought to be a hoot. I'll tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Ron, and all your contact info will be in the show notes. And for the Energy Newsbeat team, my name's Stu Turner.